Well, we're in our final week of our series, Better Together. I just want to just for a moment apologize if I walked past you last week, and if I walk past you this week, I am not feeling great, and I don't want you to not feel great, right? I already gave it to my wife, and I feel bad enough about that. You don't see her here today. She's at home feeling absolutely rotten. So we'll just throw that in there. Pray for Diane. Uh, <laughs> um, and I'm not being rude. I promise you. I want to stop and I want to shake your hands, but you don't want to shake my hand. You just, you don't want to do that. Um, but before we jump into the last day of our series, I want to give you a brief sneak preview of our Advent series starting next week. Uh, there we go. How's that? that? That sound about right? Because here's, here's the, the reality. As we jump into this Advent series an annual battle will begin to take place, right? And I'm not sure if it's Starbucks is the one that kicks off this battle every year. I, I feel like as soon as they get those cups out, everyone starts the battle, right? What is the reason for the season? And we've got a whole bunch of people vying for control of this season. Um, the usual suspects will present themselves. Um, the first one is uh, because of the axle tilt. Someone will say, well... There's a reason for the season is because the earth tilts. Well, there's got to be more to it than that, right? And then there's that closely related idea, winter solstice is the reason for the season. And closely related to that, we get to this one. And uh, Saturnalian, oh, pagans are the reason for the season. And finally, we arrive at, yeah, personally, my second favorite. I don't know about the rest of you. Uh, football is the reason for the season. And But no, 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 no. None of those reasons suffice. None of, none of those reasons work. Um, and that leads to our series question, who needs a reason for the season? And what we're going to find out in this series is, the world desperately needed a reason for the season, right? And in another, and in a week, a little bit after that, it, during our Advent series, we're going to find out that actually God needed a reason for the season. And probably above everything else, we're going to find out that, that we desperately needed a reason, a reason for the season. Um, but Pastor Jerry, it's not even Thanksgiving yet. So make that go away. Make that go away. Let's hold off on that um, until after Thanksgiving. Um, but we're going to ask ourselves another kind of an interesting, rather fascinating question this morning to close out our series. Um, and that is what, what made Jesus angry? What, what made the son of God angry? A lot of you are thinking, well, Jesus didn't get angry, right? Every time you see him, he's just like so mellow and so cool. But several times in scripture, he gets terribly upset, terribly upset. Um, and more often than not, it's, it's basically about the same thing. And I want to look at a passage today that, that, that Jesus gets very angry with, with the crowd. Um, and, and, and as we, we think about this, um, we get angry. You get angry. I, I know that. I know that for a fact. I mean, I look at some of you and I think, nah. Right? I see some of your kids and they're so wonderful and they're so angelic. And I just think there must just be peace reigning in that home all the time. Right? And I look at the daughters, my, my granddaughter's pictures, and I think, wow, you know, my daughter's house just must be this wave of just calmness. But you know what? I, I go over there occasionally and it's not. <laughs> it's not at all. And when it's time for Diane and I to go home, oh, hallelujah chorus, right? It's like, oh, we go home, we just, how did we do it? How did we do it? Well, first of all, we weren't nearly 60 years old. And if, if you're thinking about having babies when you're, don't, don't. Just, 
I'm way off topic, way off topic. That was not the point. Um, we, get it, we get angry for really, really dumb, dumb things, right? Um, I think more than anything is I think back to my wife and I raising our two daughters. I, I was the control freak. Now, I know a lot of you look at the way I run a church and you think, what? That boy's got into control over nothing. See, I'm a work in progress. <laughs> I am a control freak. And it, it worked. I work very, very hard at not controlling everything that's going on in this church because I do believe in the power of the Spirit. And I believe that the Spirit has empowered every person in this body to be the body that it needs to be. Um, but I, 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 as I, as I look at the things that would happen, my daughters would do something, and I don't know what it was, but my first reaction was to put them in the room for a month, right? That was, that was my way of controlling the situation, right? I, I've got you under my thumb now, and, and the girls would look at Diane, and she would say, I'll talk to you later. And I saw it. I saw it every time, right? I knew that was going on, that they were little secret negotiations in the back room. Don't worry about what dad says. He's nuts. He's just angry right now. <laughs> no. We get angry basically when we don't get our way, right? On the surface, it might be about homework. I remember one time my wife and I, we got into a heated discussion. And this was when we only had Amanda. and She was maybe four or five years old, maybe six. And suddenly my wife turned and saw Amanda standing at the end of the hallway. We hadn't noticed that she had been standing there. And we were going at it. And she, tears rolling down her eyes, and we we're, what are we doing? You know, and, and, and Amanda says, you promised that you would never divorce. You, you promised, you know, because she's seeing us fight, and she knows what happens when parents fight. She, she was, maybe she was seven or eight, she understood. And my, my wife's like, honey, 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 do you realize what we're fighting? We were fighting over soap. Now, I personally don't remember the argument, but I'm thinking it must have been one of the stupidest arguments, one of the stupider arguments that my wife and I had. And for the life of me, I can't even imagine what we were arguing about that would have made a man to cry. But it must have been something that we, we were just kind of going at it. We, we, we do. I mean, if you look at your anger, you would realize usually the next day, wow, that was dumb. I, I lost it. I just, I, I lost it. You know, my brain flew away for a little while there. I just, it just, that's the only explanation. How could I have gotten so angry as we step <coughs> Wow. I'll, I'll get better at that. Again, on the surface, it's homework, it's arguments, and it's soap. But if you look at the trail of evidence, you would find something, I think. The thing that really made you mad was when someone gets in your way of having your way, right? You'd better get out of their way. That's what usually makes us angry is this, this, this myth that we have that we can control things. And I so desperately wanted to control my family, my girls. I wanted them to be picture perfect and, and girls and it's just, and, and, and you feel me? You understand? Right? If they're out there in the world, they'll reflect on us. So they're better to be perfect because you know that we're perfect and right? Just this, this intense, this intense, tense thing. Um, but can we just be honest? this morning. It's, it's Thanksgiving week. Um, my guess is there's been a lot of planning, right? A lot of dreaming, a lot of scheming for this week to go just right. I can almost promise you it's not.
can you just, just go ahead and tell yourself, you know what, I've planned, and you know what, things are probably going to go sideways. They're just going to go sideways, but you know, I'm not going to get angry. I'm not in control of this thing. This is just something I want you to repeat to yourselves this week as Thursday arrives, as it gets closer and closer. I'm not in control of this thing. I just wash your hands of control and just kind of let go. And what I want to do right now before I jump into my message, I'm going to, I'm going to sit back down here in a minute. We're going to continue to sing praises to God. And, and I, I just kind of want us to stop and, and just for a moment, if, if you're one of those people, if you're like me, and you're, you're, the life out in front of you, you've got it, you've got it in, in your fist and you, you want it right there in your fist. And, and, and there's just a lot of anxiety with that kind of control, a lot of, a lot of stress. Can, can, I, can I keep it all together? Can I, can I make everybody do what they're supposed to do at the right time? You know, I watch all these little kids come up here and I just know the Sunday school teachers are going, oh, but you're not supposed to. Oh, sure, sure. And, I, and, and they all did it. They all did, they all did fine. They, they were wonderful. They, that was so fun. I, I love that. It's really hard to be thankful when you're out of control, when things aren't going like you planned. So I, I just want to stop right now. I want to enter a time of prayer. And I, I just want whatever it is that you're trying to control, what you think you're in control of this season, I want you to kind of lay it before Christ. Um, is, was, was this my thing to be in control? Just maybe a conversation with God. Is this, is this really my call? Is this what you're calling me to do this week is to be absolutely in control of this? And I just want you to ask yourself, what will be the result if things get out of control? What will be the result if they, everything goes as you planned? Right? What, let go this Thanksgiving week. I mean, if you've got life and you've got it by the neck and your knuckles are white, I just want to encourage you to let go, to, to loosen your hands just a little bit, let them, let them stretch back out. And this week, to receive from God whatever he wants to give you. And I promise you, you'll be thankful. You'll, you will be thankful. Maybe it'll be hard to see at the beginning, but at the end of the day, you will be thankful if you let go and you let God control what you've been attempting to control. So my challenge to you this morning is to, to loosen that grip of control. Um, we we kind of waffle, don't we? If we feel like we're in control, that means God's kind of loving us right now and, and everything's going according to plan. And when things start breaking down, we start saying, well, what did I do wrong? What, what is God mad at me for? Is he angry? Did I do something wrong? And, and we, we tend to go to that kind of that odd place. And, and that's just silly because our, our world continues to play out and we can't, an illusion. It's an absolute illusion to believe that we are in control of anything going on here. Um, so again, if you just bow your heads for right now, uh, we're going to look at a scripture from the book of Mark in, in which um, Jesus gets very angry at a group of people who are just a little bit over controlling, right? They're, they're, uh, and what he says to that crowd, he wants to say the same thing to you. Um, let loose. Whatever it is that you're holding so tightly to today, I want you to trust God. He is incredibly faithful.
Okay, and we waffle depending on what we're feeling that day. We, we love God and then we, ah, whatever God, and then we just kind of bounce back and forth and, and because we're, we're humans and we're trapped within our, our situations and our experiences and it's very easy to flow with our, the bellows, right? We, we, we flow with what, what, what life is doing. Um, let's get back, let's give God control this morning. Y'all bow your heads. Father, the altars are open. If, if, if you feel like the altar is the place that you need to pray where you love to meet with God, I want to invite you to come to the altar. Um, if you're comfortable where you're at to pray, that, then that's fine too. But Father, this morning we, we have the gift of the Spirit and we, we feel like, Lord, once, once we have that, we, things should, should get better. Um, but we live in an incredibly broken world filled with broken people who like to break other people in response to their brokenness. Lord, we have to experience all that. And it's so easy to enter a period of struggle. Does God love me? Is, is there something wrong? Have I not done what I'm supposed to do? And now he's not happy with me. Um, Father, this morning, if you... By the power of your spirit, impress upon us that you love us. You didn't come to condemn us. You came to save us. Father, we, we condemn ourselves. And we allow other people and we allow the evil one to condemn us. But you don't condemn us. You sent your son to save us. So, Father, this morning whatever we're holding on to, or whatever we're afraid to lose. Father, would you encourage us to let loose of that thing and to lay it before you? And Father, would you redeem it? Your word says that that's what you do. You redeem broken things. So, Lord, whatever it is, each person individually, as family groups, as groups within this body, there are things that we are so desperately trying to control. Maybe we think we're trying to protect it. But the bottom line, there's just a, there's just a little bit of pride involved. Like, nobody can fix this like I can fix it. But, Lord, that is a falsehood. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We're not in control of this thing. You are. Your spirit flows where your spirit will flow. Father, help us to be in tune with your spirit. Not the spirit of this age. Pride and place and reputation. But Father, your glory. Father, help us to lay down whatever it is it's got all, all, us all in a bunch. Help us to loosen our hands, to open them back up, Father, so that you would fill them with what you need to fill them with. Father, thank you for knowing what we don't know. Father, thank you for being faithful when we're so incredibly unfaithful. Thank you for never turning your back on us. Thank you, Father, for all these things. Thank you for the homes that we're going to go back to.
when so many people in the world, they don't have that. Father, even our cars have little homes. The rest of the world, this is just ridiculous what we worry about. But this is our world, Father. This is our context. And I know you care about these things. But Father, help us to care in the same manner that you care. Help us to properly evaluate the things that you value. Father, this morning, help us to value the things that you value and to honor the things that you honor. Thank you, Father, in your son's name I pray. Amen. So what made Jesus angry? He doesn't get angry like we get angry. We know that. So I want to look at a, a, a passage in the, the book of Mark. Um, I'm going to start in chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. And we're going to find out what made Jesus angry this morning. Mark chapter 3 verse 1 starts out. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Now we don't know why his hand was shriveled. We don't know if this was an accident. We don't know if he was born this way. But what we do know is it was very visible and it was very embarrassing for this man. This was not something that he was proud of. More than likely he kept it hidden under a sleeve. Didn't wave it around. But there was, there was drama today. There was drama at the synagogue because they had a guest speaker. Right? There were more people at the synagogue than were normally at the synagogue um, because Jesus was speaking at the synagogue that morning. And people had been hearing that when Jesus speaks, amazing things happen. Wherever Jesus is, you, you don't want to miss it. You want to be wherever Jesus is. So he's in the synagogue. So the whole crowd came out, right? This was kind of like Easter or Christmas, right? When Jesus is there, everybody that skipped the rest of the year, everybody shows up when Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. Now, somehow, and we don't know how, but this man had made known to to Jesus that he had a shriveled hand. And, and again, the text doesn't show us that it was there some kind of, you know, a quiet communication. He made eye contact with him and he let him see his hand. And, and we don't know what really went on there, but somehow the man had made it known to Jesus that he needed help. And the wild thing is, in this situation, we, 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 we don't, it's quickly, it's, it's very easy to read right on over it, but this was the Sabbath. Right? And, and what this man expected Jesus to do, if Jesus did it, would have gotten the man in trouble, would have gotten Jesus in trouble, would have gotten... I mean, it would have just been an explosive situation because there were certain things that you do and you don't do on the Sabbath. And it was the Sabbath and this man had made it known that he needed help, that he had a shriveled hand. And again, recognize the explosiveness of what could happen. And again, this man is trying to be really low-key. It doesn't say he's calling out, son of David, son of David, come save me. Doesn't say that the man said anything, but somehow the crowd knew, Jesus knew that this man had a shriveled hand and, and he was quietly, he was asking for help. Trusting Jesus, but you, you gotta help me, Jesus. In verse 2, some of them, we're going to talk about them, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him 
on a Sabbath. And suddenly we're introduced to a version of religion, really, that attempts to prioritize God above what God prioritizes, right? Uh, values, something, uh, 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 a religion that values God more than what God values. And I know that sounds impossible, but we all try to do it. We all try to kind of, I don't, and it sounds, just saying it sounds silly. We try to out God God. Have you ever done that? Right? You're, you're teaching your kids and you know that this is the expectation, but you, you bump it just a little because they're, they're your kid and you want them to, right? So you start adding just a little bit more than even what God would want or expect. And, and you kind of just, we, we just start loading because we, we just, we don't, we don't want our people that we love to, to suffer. And so we, we kind of out God, God. And crazy, crazy thing. But verse 3, listen to this. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everybody. Now listen, this was the last thing that that man wanted. Right? We've already been talking about the fact that he wasn't real outspoken. He wasn't crying out. He wasn't drawing attention to himself. But somehow he had clandestinely made known that, hey, he's got this shriveled hand. He's got this issue and it's embarrassment and, it, and it's, it's been a real bother for him. And he... And he, he he wants a situation dealt with. He's embarrassed. He's thinking maybe, maybe, you know, hey, Jesus, let's meet in the lobby afterwards. Maybe back, you know, back maybe in the green room or, you know, not in front of this whole crowd. But Jesus tells him, stand up in front of everybody. So this man's this nightmare, right? I, I'm sure he thought about this. This is the Sabbath. And now this, this man has me standing in front of a whole bunch of people that scare me. Right? These Pharisees are scary people, right? If they find out that you do something wrong, someone's going to pay. And that man did not want to pay. And so things are not going according to plan. It was all supposed to be shh on the DL, right? Hey, Jesus, you know, me and you. Stand up in front of everybody. What? <laughs> and while standing, Jesus turns to them this just makes, this makes the situation worse. just horrible for the man. Would you please stand here? Oh, everybody, everybody look up here. Look at his shriveled hand. And now I want to talk to you for a little. Don't, just stand there. Just, don't sit down. Just, and now I want to talk about spiritual things. <laughs> you ever have somebody do that to you? You've got an issue and they want to talk spiritual things. You're hungry. You need healing. And they want to talk about the, the higher things of God. And you're just thinking, Really? I'd, I'd really like some bread, Could maybe a cup of coffee, but hey, you know, you can go, go talk about spiritual things. That's all good and fine. Maybe when you're all done, you can swing back around to me because like I'm really hungry and I really, really need some help. But you, you Christian, you crazy people, I'll tell you what. Oh, boy, boy. So this is all going on. You stand there. Jesus turns to them and he asks them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? Now, there are a lot of Sabbath rules, man. These people were tightly wound about their Sabbath rules. I'll tell you what, they, they had a long list of them. Remember, we, we've talked about this before. We've, we've got the Ten Commandments, of which this is one of them. And what the Jewish people did was is they built kind of a fence of rules around the Ten Commandments so that in order to break the Ten Commandments, you had to break one of these other lesser rules. And then they would build another fence around that fence, and they would just have these, these fences of rules so that you didn't violate. And pretty soon you had just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules so that you wouldn't break the one rule. Here's kind of how they define work on the Sabbath. This is kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I think it's very accurate. And maybe you, maybe this is your definition also, right? Work is whatever one else does, what everybody else does, but not them. 
You ever done that? You ever think about how angry you get when somebody sins or does something that you feel is wrong? Um, but when you do it, oh, I had a bad day, right? I, that person's just a bad person, but I had a bad day. How many, how many of you ever done that? But come on, I'll be honest, right? You bagged on somebody and then you realize, ah, I did the same thing. But I had a reason. I had a good excuse, right? I wasn't feeling well. But that person, they just need counseling. <laughs> that person, they just need Jesus because they're just bad. I'm not in that category, right? I, I had a reason. I, I had a reason. Kind of a multiple choice quiz he gives them. Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Now, if he had stopped just there, everybody would have said, oh, yeah, we know the answer to that one. Do good. Only do good. Everybody knows the answer. But before anybody can answer, he throws that second line in there. To save life or to kill. See, this is a big deal. On the Sabbath, if you've got an animal, one of your animals, your donkey, your oxen, whatever, and they fall into a ditch or something happens, you weren't allowed to pull it out. That was work. But the fact remains that every one of these men had most likely saved an animal on the Sabbath. They had most likely done good things on the Sabbath. But they were in a position to stop anybody else from doing any work on the Sabbath. If they did it, it was all good because they had an excuse. They had a reason. But all the rest of you, you got to toe the line. That's kind of the way religion is. Right? We have an excuse, but everybody else is sinful. Sinful. At the heart of the question, though, is kind of a question behind the question. The question behind the question, was the law for the benefit of God or was for the benefit of those that God loves? What is the purpose of the law? What was the purpose of the Sabbath? To serve man or should man serve the Sabbath? Was man made for the Sabbath? Was the Sabbath made for man? Now, that's kind of a silly question. That's kind of like if you all went home today and you went into your living room and you don't have any kids and you had a bunch of toys in your living room and you turned to your spouse and said, hey, let's have kids so that we can have somebody to pick up the toys. You don't have kids to pick up toys. That's just silly. See, this is what's going on right here. The Sabbath wasn't made for man. Excuse me, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a gift for man. Again, so everybody knew the answer to the question, religious or not, but they wouldn't answer. Listen to this. They remained silent. Verse 4. They knew the answer, but they couldn't let Jesus be right. They couldn't let Je their pride just, just, uh, just, it didn't even blind them. They could see. They could see very clearly that he had them nailed to the wall. And they simply weren't going to answer. Because if they answered, that means they were wrong and Jesus was right. So here they have, in this situation, we have a bunch of people. They're trying to be good moral people by keeping the Sabbath. Now, I don't want to bag on them at, at that point. They really are doing their best. But they're bumping up against why did God create the Sabbath? It's one thing to observe the Sabbath, to keep it holy. But if we're not very careful, we don't understand the intent of the Sabbath as a gift. It can go sideways in a hundred different ways. We can create all sorts of theologies about Sabbath that were never meant to be created. It was just supposed to be a gift to us. Work for seven days and one day just stop. Just stop. You need it. Psychologists and science has been finding this out to the T. 
all these years, God knew it from the day one, you all need to rest. You need at least a day a week to stop striving. Be still. Let him be God one day a week. You go ahead and be God for six days a week, but let him be God for one day. I'm using tongue-in-cheek there. Don't, don't read too much into that statement. They remained silent. Here's the freebie, a little off the topic, but I'm just going to squeeze this in. When our application of Scripture conflicts with the intent of the author of Scripture, we have the wrong application. And we do that a lot. We do our Bible, we go through it, and we kind of cherry-pick the things that we like. We take it out of context, and we, oh, oh hmm, here, this is what you want, this is, good. This is what you got to do. And when you, when, when you look deeply into it, and you're like, well, that, that's not even what he meant. That's not what he was trying to do. That wasn't his intent. So I think we just really just, I mean, I'm going to go off topic there, and let's come back now. This is verse 5 now. How does Jesus react when someone tries to use the law of God to hurt people that God loves? Watch this. Verse 5, he looked around at them in anger. This is what made Jesus mad. What made him mad? He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. That's what made him mad. Their pride got in the way of truth. They knew what was the truth, and they decided, nope, nope, nope. Right? You see your kids do it all the time. And yet you, we know we do it as adults, and we tell our kids, and, and I know our kids are going, ah, Dad, come on now, I've seen you. <sighs> he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, again, you got to feel for the guy. This, he, he's so hard. He's so, trying so hard to hide it. And now, basically, the Son of God is asking him to to display for everybody. I'm sure everybody knew it. It was a small village, but it's not like he wants to stand up and make an announcement. This is why I'm out of work. This is why I'm having trouble feeding my family. This is why I'm embarrassed and I didn't want to say anything. And Jesus is making him stand up and stretch out his hand. Stand there. Stand there while Jesus, you talk and you, you have this crazy spiritual conversation. You made me stand up here this whole time and now you're, now you're going to make me stand up and you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're asking me to stretch out my embarrassment. It's been embarrassing my whole life. But somebody must have told him about Jesus. He must have heard about Jesus. So he trusted Jesus. He trusted him with what had been to that point shame and embarrassment, but at this point, he's, he's not willing to live with the shame and embarrassment anymore. And that's why he made his hand known to Jesus. It's not going as he planned, but he was just tired. Maybe you're at that point. Maybe it's just, just time to stand up and, and, and to be honest, to show everybody your hands. How tightly have you have them clenched around? I don't know. What is it that you have your hands clenched around? But he asked this man, stand up and stretch out your hand. And in verse 5, it says he stretched it out and his hand was completely healed. 
Now, you would think, you would think that the crowd would have been erupted into ovation, right? Oh, that was amazing. That was amazing. That was amazing. Oh, Jesus, you are, we'll follow you. We'll do everything that you want from here on out. Um, but in the very next verse, this is how the crowd reacted. Watch this, verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians about how they might kill Jesus. Again, it's easy to see Jesus as the hero of this story, kind of root for Jesus. But what Jesus had done, and we got to recognize this, he had just put forward a kind of a, a very, very uncomfortable version of religion. A version of religion in which they were bumping up against their, their desire to control everything. See, we want to treat people, this is kind of the way it plays out, we want to treat people the way we want to treat people. And then if it's not good, then we want to just kind of turn away for a moment and say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, and some kind of magical, mystical process, and suddenly we're forgiven and everything's good. But you're still sitting there stinging from whatever it is that I said or did. But how did I respond to that? You and me, Lord, me and you. We're good? We're good? Fine. And now I can carry on with my life. This, this is kind of what we want. Hit that next slide there. We want a faith that makes us accountable to how we treat God, but not others. If we're really, really, really honest with ourselves, but that's not Christianity. That's just do the right ritual the right way and everything works out. Say the right words and you're all good to go. Action's not required, just the ritual. See, this is kind of the way it was with ancient religions. There were the gods and there were us. The gods didn't care about us. All right? We would give to the gods. We would sacrifice to the gods all the way up to our firstborns. Just between me and the gods. There was no morality. There was no horizontal morality. It was just between me and the gods. See, because the gods didn't care about people. And if the gods didn't care about people, you didn't have to care about people. Does that make sense? And that's the way that every ancient religion was. The gods were ap apathetic at best, hostile at worst. And it was really between you and them. How many gifts could you give them so that they would leave you alone? But it had nothing to do with how you treated your neighbor. That was not a part of any of the equations. Just keep the gods happy. People don't matter because they don't matter to the gods. And this has crept into nearly every modern religion today. In fact, I would imagine that for many of you and for many of the people that you know who might have left the church, this is why they left the church. They left the church because they ran into a version of religion that valued God but ignored what God values. A lot of people got angry with the church because they, they saw this. They saw religious people honoring God, but not honoring the things that God honors. And there was a disconnect. And I don't know if it happened to you, but my guess is it happened to a lot of people. They looked at us, they looked at Christianity, and they said, mm, they're trying to out-God God. They're trying to out-God God. And it's not coming off very well. It's coming off really mean. A little stingy, a little hypocritical, because they certainly don't have it all together. 
They're trying to out-God God. But Jesus taught the very opposite. See, when people use the law of God to discount people made in the image of God, Jesus was quick to remind them that they were on the wrong side of God. Jesus didn't get angry when he didn't get his way. See, that's us. Jesus didn't get angry when things didn't go his way. He got angry when religion got in the way. That's what made Jesus, that's what made the Son of God angry. It doesn't matter how much you honor me, how much you glorify me. I promise you, if you mistreat my wife, your honoring me means zilch. If you dishonor my children and my family, and yet you say you honor me, you're a liar. And I don't want to have anything to do with you. You cannot value me unless you value the things that I value. So what does Jesus ask of us? All he asked was to follow him. Now we want to focus so badly on our attendance and our tithing and our giving and, our, and all of the disciplines. Those are all important, but for some reason we have elevated them far and above where they should be. We've done this because we actually believe that these things will give us religious bliss. These things will give us religious security. If I'm at church every single Sunday and I tithe at least 10% and I do this and I do that, then God's got to be happy with me. Me and God. Me and God. I did everything I was supposed to do. I checked off every box. Not that those boxes are bad. Please hear me. But they're not the top of the list for Christ. They will come because they will come out of the love. They will not come out of a sense of obligation, a sense of guilt, a sense of anything else. They're going to come because you love him. And you're not going to be able to stop attending church if you fall in love with Jesus. If you decide to go to a church that preaches his name, you won't be able to keep yourself out of church. Nobody will tell you, you should be going to church. That's like me, somebody telling me, you should be hanging out with your wife. I do. I hang out with my wife all the time because I love her. Nobody needs to tell me. Nobody needs to go, hey, Jerry, you remember your vows? <laughs> oh, that's right. I'm supposed to hang out with my wife. Oh. No. Nobody needs to tell me to hang out with Diane. I hang out with her because I love her. When we begin to serve as God served... Not as we would like to be served, but, as, but in the same way that God served us. Your whole economic system is going to get turned upside down. Because, it's, because love's a verb. It's not a spiritual discussion. Love is a verb. That's why we're doing what we're doing with Carmichael Middle School. Because love is a verb. Now, we could tell them, hey, you all need to come to church and you need to hear the word of God. And then we could, boom, that's not going to work. They're not going to come in here because something has to happen in their lives. Something has to make a difference. And we've been called to be that difference maker. That's, that's our call. This is why we're doing what we're doing at Carmichael. And this is why we're going to be doing what we're going to be doing at Orchard Hills Elementary School. Because love is a verb. I want to close with the words of Paul to a young Timothy. It's Thanksgiving week, and he gives a very strange piece of advice to Timothy. He tells Timothy, be rich. 
And I want to tell you this Thanksgiving, be rich. Be rich. Listen to this. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll start in verse 17. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in faith, in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Verse 7, excuse me, 18. It says, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Now, understand the coming age has already been ushered in with Christ. It's not talking about when heaven rolls around, when I finally die and go to heaven. This is when I meet Christ. You are in the future age when you meet Christ. I just want to make sure you're all aware of that. He introduced this coming age, and the Jews thought it would be some great day in the future. But Christ said, no, I've ushered in. The day of the Lord is, is now, is now. Um, we don't see it perfectly and, and, and one day we will, but I've already ushered in the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, here's my guess. Many of us in this room, it's not a guess. We are rich by the world standards. I know we, we get so tired of hearing that. I just read a statistic. If you make $50,000 a year, you're in the top 4% of the world right? Top 4% of the world. Now, it's hard to feel like that when everyone next to you is like in the 3% and then the 2% and the 1%. You're like, oh, I'm only in the 4%. Comparatively speaking, it kind of feels like, oh, what a bummer. But listen, we are rich. We are rich. And you just need to tell yourself that you are rich when given the whole world. We are rich. But here's the problem. We have shriveled hands. We have alligator hands. You ever, you ever seen alligator hands? Right? When it's time to give the tip. Oh, I can't reach my wallet. Oh, we got See, we got these shriveled up hands that we've, we've, we've learned. We've, we've stopped using them. Right? And they become like atrophy. Just like this guy in the scripture. And it's like, and Christ is saying, reach out your hand. And that's what I ask you to do as we begin to pray this morning. Just reach out your hand. And I, and, I, and I know whatever it is, it's just shriveled up and it's like atrophied around, I don't know, a person's neck or a situation's neck. And, and, and Christ is just saying, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. And I will heal you. I will fix that hand. And I will open up those fingers and I will pry them open one after another. It might take some time. But I'm going to pry those fingers open. And you're going to begin to release instead of holding. You're going to begin to trust instead of controlling. But that's a step that you've all got to take. He's waiting for you to take that step. He's not going to force that step on you. But he is asking you this morning, stretch out your hand. If you feel like your hand has been wrapped around something, I don't know what it is. I have no idea that's between you and the Lord. And it might be another person's neck. This time of season, it's probably around your mother-in-law's neck. I'm just saying. Let loose. Let loose. Your wife's going to be mad if you don't. Let loose. This morning, I want to give you an opportunity to accept Christ as your Savior. If you've been living your life and you've just... You've been controlling it. You've decided, I don't know, for what reason, 
because of the lie from the pit of hell that you could be in control and you've been fighting it all these years and you've got your grip on everything and then you know everything is slipping through your fingers. No matter how tight you grip it, somehow, some way, you're losing control. Where you thought you were gaining control, you're actually losing control. And Christ is telling you this morning, give me control. Give me control. Let me call the shots. Let me decide who's rich and who's not. Reach out your hand this morning. If you bow your head, Father, we have our, our, our fingers wrapped so tightly around so many things, and, and you're calling us to let loose and to trust you. And we, we know from our own experience that we're not faithful, but when we read in your word, we find out that you are faithful. We can trust you. We don't have to be in control. So, Father, this morning, if there's anybody in this room who would just say a simple prayer, Lord, I am tired of being in control. I want you to be in the driver's seat from here on out. I don't want to be, I can't be the savior of my life because I can't save anything. I've been trying to save my own life and I've only been losing it. Every time I turn around, I lose it. So Father, I, I, I need you to take control of my life. I need you to decide what is rich and what's not. I need you to make these decisions for me. I, I will be a part of those decisions, Lord, but I need guidance. So, Father, this morning, if there's anybody in this room who has decided, I, this Thanksgiving, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do something that I'm going to be thankful for for eternity. I'm going to give my life to Christ this morning. I'm going to become a follower of Jesus Christ this morning. I'm going to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Father, I'm, I'm, I apologize. I, I have been going down the wrong way. Um, God's Word tells me that, that if I would turn towards you, you'll always be there waiting. And, and right now, I want to turn towards you. I want to turn 180 degrees. I want to stop going in the direction I've been going. And I want to start just going towards you only. And Lord, I trust you. I don't trust myself. I don't trust anything else, but I trust you because you are trustworthy. You are faithful. So, Father, this morning, bless every person by the power of your spirit who have made a decision this morning to trust you with their lives, to accept you as their Lord and Savior this morning, right here, right here, right here, Richland Church of the Nazarene. I give you control, Father. Redeem the mess that I've made. Make this thing that you call life, make this truly life. Show me what's real. Show me what's false. Show me how to be rich in your kingdom. Because I have been hearing too many testimonies. And those testimonies ring true. And I want that life. I want to truly live this morning. And I want to be thankful for something big. So, Father, thank you for every person in this room who either re-decided this morning to give their lives back to you. They gave you their life one time, and then they took it back. Lord, but you understood they were just nervous. They were scared. 
So this morning they're giving it back to you. And it might happen a whole bunch more times, Father, but, but you understand. You understand. Father, thank you. Thank you for Thanksgiving. Thank you for, for forcing, not forcing us, but asking us to just to once a week stop and be thankful for all the things that you do give us. To stop once a week and to count our blessings. Because, Father, if we don't do that, we forget. We forget how good you've been, how good you promised to be, how good you've been to people around us, and how all of your words continue to come true. Father, thank you this morning for your spirit, for what your spirit has been orchestrating, what your spirit started long ago, concluded today, and will continue to perfect, to sanctify perfectly our lives so that we can purely worship you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for making all this possible. Jesus, in your holy name we pray this morning. Amen.